0: Coming up on today's show, Ottawa proposing an oil and gas sector cap on emissions. We'll talk about the storm that tore through Medicine Hat last night. We'll talk about, with the intense heat happening around the world, how we're making it worse for people who live in cities, strictly by the way we build cities. The Canadian uh, government coming out with two proposals, two possible ways to meet their goals when it comes to emissions in the oil and gas sector. What are their goals? Well, they want to cut emissions 40 to 45% below 2005 levels by 2030, and then uh, be at net zero by 2050. Now, those numbers aren't new, okay? Those were proposed a while ago. What is new is the plans they've come up with to try and do this. A cap-and-trade system, carbon price for heavy emitters, basically is what it is. So what happens now is the oil and gas sector. The provinces and other stakeholders are being given until the end of September to comment on the proposals that are put forward. And then we should get more details on how this is going to work early next year. Now, as you might expect, um, our province has said immediately that, yeah, not going to happen. It's not even a starter. Alberta will not accept any plan from the federal government that seeks to interfere in our constitutionally protected ability to develop our resources. That's from uh, a joint statement from the Energy and the Environment Ministers of Alberta yesterday saying it's not going to work. And of course, when these original targets were announced, the NDP said they were a fantasy and not attainable. So where are we now? We're going to chat with Blake Schaefer, who's an assistant professor in the Department of Economics at the University of Calgary. Uh, Dr. Schaefer, thank you for joining us. Appreciate your time. Hang on, let me just push that button. I apologize. Hi, Doc. Hey, thanks for having me. Um, Okay, so let's just start. Let's walk through the two plans if we can. The first one is a cap-and-trade system, right? I mean, we've heard that. That's not a new system that's been around, but how would it work in this context?
1: Yeah, so what would be unique here is it would apply to one sector only, so the oil and gas sector, and they set a quantity cap, and that determines the number of allowances, so emission allowances that are out there. Those get distributed in some fashion, and that's part of the consultations. How do you hand out those allowances? And then all of the different participants in the industry would trade amongst themselves to determine who gets the right to emit. Uh, And that would also, in turn, set the price on those emissions. So you're you're setting that quantity uh, cap, and then the price floats to whatever it needs to be to, to allocate uh, that scarce amount of emissions.
0: And within that allowance that comes from government, it's up to industry to sort of trade and barter and go back and forth, right?
1: Exactly. So imagine it's just you and me in industry and, and you are, are, are selling something for really high value. So it's really worthwhile for you to emit. And I'm a marginal producer. If I have some allowances, I'll probably end up selling them to you because they're worth more to you. Uh, and then that means I won't be able to emit, uh, and you
0: will. Gotcha. Makes perfect sense. Okay. The other system uh, is carbon. I mean, essentially they're both a price on carbon. But the other one is the carbon price for heavy industrial emitters, uh, an incentive to drive things down. Of course, we've heard of this before. How would it be different in this context?
1: Yeah, exactly. So we have heard of it. We, it is the thing we have in place already yeah. in Alberta. It's a provincial system called Tier. Um, So the difference here is rather than a quantity target like the cap and trade where the quantity is fixed and the price floats, here you're setting the price and then effectively hoping it delivers you the right amount of quantity reduction that the government's hoping for. Um, The change being discussed is we do have this in place, but what the the federal government is saying, it's not sufficient to hit the quantity targets that they want to see in terms of emission reductions in that sector. So what they would be doing is every five years revisiting that carbon price to say, are we on track? If we are okay, price stays as that is. If we're not, we're going to raise that price to a level that they think is going to drive more re- the reductions they want to see. So what the challenge here is we already have carbon pricing, yeah. which delivers some reductions, but it doesn't guarantee the quantity of reductions. Now the federal government has added this new layer, which is, We want to see a specific quantity of reductions in this one specific sector, and to do that they need one of these two new instruments.
0: I was interested to hear some industry insiders saying, you know what, we're okay with this. We want some certainty because they think that, you know, I mean, we've been setting these goals going back to the early 90s and blasted through every one of them. And it's sort of, you've got all of these promises and all this talk without really any plans or any structure in place. And it's been very difficult to operate and to attract investment. So in some ways, they welcome this.
1: Well, there's some clarity, but I'd say right now we're in the middle ground where, you know, sort of all the balls are still in the air because we don't even know what system's in place. And probably the bigger thing, the thing that I noticed from the announcement yesterday is the the interim numbers, like what are the reductions by 2030, 2035? The the numbers you quoted on your intro, that was from a previous document of targets. But they actually didn't clarify what the actual cap will be. They were quite explicit that that's still in discussion. And that is a huge parameter. If the reductions are uh, um, steep early on and then flatten out, that'll be obviously better for GHG reductions, but it'll be harder to reach. It'll be uh, more costly to reach. If it's slower, that that isn't as good for GHG reductions, but that gives time to get the technology in place. So that's going to be a huge negotiation point um, because that will really determine, does, does this, Emissions cap, will it really result in production cuts, or can it be attained by, uh, what we say, emission intensity improvement, so uh, reducing the amount of emissions per barrel of oil or per molecule of natural gas? So the, the, the shape of that cap trajectory is still up in the air, and, and that's a hugely important um, parameter in all of this
0: the likelihood of this being the plan that actually sticks. Um, When we take a look at this, I mean, the province has said, no, they're they're not into it at all, rejecting it out of hand. But I know industry, I mean, oil sands, the major producers, they already have a net zero by 2050 goal, they've stated. And so, I mean, some of the industry has already said, we're interested in this, we're on board. It seems like, in some ways, you've got a starting ground. They seem to be in an agreement on some of the big issues here.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, when you think about the points of agreement, we kind of agree where we are now, yeah. and we agree on the 2050. <laughs> um, so the 2050, I not everyone, but like, as you point out, the large oil sands companies, that Pathways Alliance, have agreed on a net zero by 2050. So this is a little bit of sort of the, you know, they call it the put up or shut up moment, which is yeah. saying, okay, we agreed, so we obviously can't get there by doing 100% reductions in 2049. There's clearly a path that has to get there. So now it's kind of you know um, saying okay let's let's actually get real about these reductions. So that's where I say the the, the shape, that slope, you know, the path between now and 2050, that's where there's going to be some debate, some negotiations on what's realistic, um, what's costly, what's attainable. Uh, I think that's a reasonable discussion to be had. Um, but you you are right that by 2050 has been largely agreed upon. So right. If we agree on that and it's a credible agreement, we should have a plan to get there.
0: So how does this plan come together from here? You know, industry, the provinces, everybody has a chance to sort of respond. Is there is there going to be a summit? Is there a meeting? Is this done electronically? What's the plan here? How does this come together? Yeah,
1: you know, I don't know the actual specifics of how this consultation will work. Normally what happens is there's written submissions yeah. and then there'll be there's often often there'll be some meetings. Um They have said that that some of those key parameters will will be announced in early 2023. So we're still six to nine months away from having a bit more clarity. Um, Inevitably, you know, whichever way it comes out, there's going to be some disagreement. Clearly, the provincial government has said as such that they're they're geared up for a fight. Uh, What's interesting here is the cap-and-trade system would have to come under a, a different legislation than the rest of carbon pricing. It would come under the Canadian Environmental Protection Act. Um, so likely that would be put up for a legal challenge. The other one leverages the existing carbon price, which has already gone to the Supreme Court, so that is less likely to hit uh, a legal challenge, but the the political challenge there is it's not a federal policy anymore that governs uh, provincial large emitters. That's the provincial program, which has to pass an equivalency test with the federal program every five years. So you can see how it sets up for this big fight every five years of is it good enough? Is it good enough? Right. Um, so there's you know, it won't be easy sailing, but it is promising that at least some folks in in, in industry, which is you know really what matters ultimately in yes. terms of uh, will this take hold? There's some support, although I think what they're concerned about is you know what is the slope of that trajectory? Yeah.
0: Devils in the details, absolutely for sure. Yeah. Uh, Doctor Schaefer, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us today.
1: You bet. Take care.
0: Bye-bye. That is Dr. Blake Schaefer, an assistant professor in the Department of Economics at the University of Calgary. And I think he's right. You know, we've got the end goal that we've agreed upon. We all know where we are now, and it's charting the path to where we want to be in 30 years. the uh, Medicine Hat region and and you got a story to tell about what happened yesterday afternoon, please give us a call uh, and let us know what you saw. Uh, Just a terrible storm down there. A lot of homes damaged. Um, Dallas Flexog of Global News has been there all morning uh, surveying what's gone on and speaking with residents. And I know she has a press conference to get to. So we'll get her on the air right now. Dallas, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us.
2: Yeah, hi, Shay. Good morning.
0: Yeah, I mean, some of the pictures that you've been sending out on your Twitter feed and all the rest, I mean, really shocking to see. There was a lot of damage done yesterday, wasn't there?
2: There was a lot of damage done. Uh, The the area where we're seeing most of the damage is actually just outside of Medicine Hat along uh, Highway 523. And you can see just a line of damage uh, with several homes just completely wiped out. And we've been talking to a number of folks uh, there, including one couple who... Uh, It had a home under construction there. The walls were up. The windows were up. Uh, That's no longer the case. That was wiped out. And amazingly, we were talking to a construction company that was working on the house. They confirmed that six of the framers were in a trailer at the time of the storm. And when you see this trailer, it it was tossed 100 feet. It's all crumpled. It's amazing that six framers made it out of there relatively unscathed. Uh, I hear they're at home just taking a break right now. Um, their vehicles were rolled and found uh, strewn across the lawn. So uh, just remarkable that there were no injuries in this storm from what we have been uh, out and experiencing this morning.
0: Yeah, it really is. When you see the pictures, the fact that nobody was injured is, you know, I mean, it's fantastic, but it really is surprising. What about power? I know power went down for quite a while, right? Is it back in all areas?
2: Yeah, well, we were talking about uh, the City of Medicine Had and then the neighboring town of Red Cliff and then uh, areas throughout Cypress County. At one point, there was uh, close to 8,000 without power yesterday. As of uh, about midnight, there are still 1,900 uh, without power. I understand there was a live power line. Uh, sitting in the North Saskatchewan River, so that was causing some issues there. But I know crews were back out as of 7 o'clock this morning trying to fully restore it. Just not quite an ETA yet on when it's going to be fully restored, but certainly they've come a long way since uh, yesterday afternoon.
0: And a lot of discussion about whether or not it was a tornado or it was a straight-line wind or a plow wind. I guess, I mean, weather uh, freaks might be interested in that. doesn't really matter. The destruction was done. But what's the difference, and what are you hearing about whether or not it was a tornado?
2: Well, it depends on who you talk to out here, right? Because you can see like a line of a storm when you go uh, just on the outskirts. So that could indicate that there was a tornado. Certainly we are waiting for official word from Environment Canada. The people we're talking to here uh, who survived it, uh, one guy named Ed, he had a tree come through the roof of his home. He actually doesn't think it was a tornado. He saw trees and his windows smashing, uh, but we saw those winds... uh, gusting over 140 kilometers an hour, which our meteorologist says is equal to an F1 tornado. So the power of it, whether it was a tornado or not, is still there. Exactly. And we should be hearing at some point, I would think today, uh, whether or not it was an official tornado. But again, the damage is done, as you say.
0: Yeah, exactly. The wind is the wind, and and it was very, very destructive. So um, how's the weather down there today? I mean, I'm taking a look at the forecast. There's no alerts. There's no warning. So it doesn't look there's, there's any worry of a repeat performance today, right?
2: Uh, no, bluebird sky, I don't even see any clouds. I can still see the moon in the sky, to be honest. So uh, weather is good today. But even, even as of last night, we were still seeing some more rain and some more cloud coverage. Uh, that is all gone today. You're seeing a lot of, uh, within the city of Medicine Hat and beyond, like a lot of the trees that are down and a lot of the restoration companies out now trying to just start to clean up, which is going to be
0: significant. Yeah, always is. Yeah, Dallas, uh, thanks so much for your reporting. Really appreciate you joining us. Thanks, Jason that's dallas flexog global news reporter out of calgary taking a look at what's happening in medicine hat this morning i appreciate her checking in she's busy she's off to a press conference that i think starts in about five minutes so let's get some updates on what's happening we're going to check in with adam jones uh who lives in the area and was uh, sending out some videos yesterday adam how are you i'm good shay how are you good good thanks for joining us this morning um yeah we're okay first of all tell us where you are are you in red Cliff or in medicine hat
3: We're in Redcliffe, just outside of Medicine Hat.
0: Okay, and that was, I mean, I don't know if you want to call it ground zero, but you certainly had something tear through your neighborhood based on the pictures. Tell us what you saw.
3: Yeah, it was just after 1 o'clock. It came up out of nowhere, and I went out on the porch to take a video, and all of a sudden it sounded like a freight train starting to come through. Um, I'm not smart enough to go to the basement, so I just kept shooting the video. And uh, all of a sudden it just more and more and more, and then it went away. Um, but it turns out the majority of the damage was probably about four kilometers from us just across the river Valley. So it actually wasn't very far from us.
0: No, that's pretty close, but it was, it was short lived for you. And I mean, you got through it. Okay. No damage to the house or anything like that. We did. Okay. The only
3: damage to our house was our front gate got ripped apart. Um, but you know, in the grand scheme of life, that's absolutely nothing. We had to go pick our dog up not long after. And there is there's quite a bit of devastation in Redcliffe. We saw a trampoline wrapped around a light post, um, there was part of a roof ripped off. Like there was there was quite a bit of damage in the town.
0: That was pretty early in the day, one in the afternoon. Did it Was that it, one and done, or did it carry on for a while? It came back a little bit, I would say, just
3: before two, kind of circled around, but not nearly as severe, and then that was it. It turned into a beautiful day after that. Wow. What about power? You lost power for a while, right? We did. We were without power for about eight hours. Thankfully, the crews worked really hard and got everything back up for the town of Redcliffe. Uh, I do know there is still people without power in Medicine Hat, though. They're going on 24 hours now.
0: Yeah, I think they're talking about uh, there's a few thousand that still, and I guess, I mean, the power lines went down is what it was, right? Yeah, just by um, one of the big
3: hockey rinks here in town, a whole row of power lines were brought down across the road. There must have been 10 power lines laying
0: down. Unbelievable, but everybody was safe, which is kind of remarkable. What's the weather like there now? Is it sort of the calm after the storm, if you will?
3: It is. It's a beautiful day today. It's, it's a little warm, a little humid, um, but skies are absolutely blue, not a cloud in sight. Um, just another beautiful Southern Alberta day.
0: There you go. Awesome. Well, I'm glad everything went well and you're okay, Adam. I appreciate you checking in. Hey, thanks so much, Jay. I appreciate it. That's Adam Jones, uh, who lives in Redcliffe, which is uh, just outside of mason and was, as he said, about 4K away. It seems to be where the damage was. And these, thi- these things are crazy. If you've never been to the scene of one of these wicked weather events... Now, we don't know if this was a tornado or a straight plow wind or whatever they call it, but um, it's. I've been to at least two or three different tornado scenes after the fact, and you go in, and it's interesting because literally you can have total devastation and destruction trees stripped snapped cars flying around boats hanging in trees i've seen all these sorts of things and then 10 15 20 yards away nothing absolutely nothing completely untouched trailer sitting there intact with you know it's it's absolutely incredible they're almost surgical so uh if you're not directly in the line i mean you're still going to have a heck of a storm but in some cases you may dodge the worst of it it's it's like i say almost surgical when you see the aftermath So we've been talking about the weather quite a bit today. Uh, It's been hot in Alberta, but nothing, um, you know, Crazy hot. Nothing out of the ordinary, at least not yet for this summer. You remember what happened last summer. Uh, that was crazy hot. And we saw the heat dome, and it caused all kinds of problems right across Western Canada. We know what's going on in Europe right now. Uh, in uh, the UK, they recorded their hottest ever temperature. Over 40 degrees at Heathrow Airport for the first time in uh, recorded history. Same thing happening in France and in Spain and in Portugal and all across those areas. Um, Interesting conversation we're going to have here about how, you know, we, in a lot of ways, as humans, we've probably gone and made this worse for ourselves than it had to be. But here's a question. Sarah, you, you you, lived in a small town and now you live in Edmonton. Is Are summers hotter in Edmonton than they were in Two Hills?
2: I think so, yeah. It definitely feels warmer here.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, our next guest has done a tremendous amount of work around this and says, yeah. Uh, We've turned our cities into little heat islands that uh, are much hotter than anywhere else. Uh, So we're going to chat now with Dr. Ian Stewart, who is a research fellow at the University of Toronto's Global Cities Institute and an international expert on the heat island effect. Dr. Stewart, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us.
4: It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you.
0: Yeah, you've done a lot of work around how, as I say, humans have kind of gone and taken a bad situation and made it worse for ourselves with the way that we build our cities. Um... How do cities turn up the heat? Walk us through your work.
4: Well, um, it's almost ine- inevitable when we construct a city that we're going to change the, the local climate of that uh, space where we, we where we built the city, and that's because essentially we're we're removing the the natural landscape that existed prior to the city, and we're replacing it with artificial materials: concrete, steel, glass, pavement, tile, brick, and so on. And all of these materials have a very different thermal behavior. Than natural soils and vegetation and, and water bodies and so on. And in fact, they store more heat uh, through the day through the receipt of solar radiation, and they retain that heat and release it very slowly through the night. And so that creates evenings and night times in cities, which are considerably warmer than the surrounding countryside, which is typically agricultural land or natural land. The other contributing factor is that. The placement of buildings side by side in the city, whether they're they're residential towers or office towers or institutional buildings, they tend to trap the radiation in in the canyon spaces or the street spaces between the buildings because they're quite narrow. And so there's a lot of reflection and reabsorption of radiation in those uh, geometric spaces of cities. So it's a combination of the thermal properties and the geometry of the city that creates a, a heat island effect.
0: How how big of a difference does that effect have? Is there any way of quantifying it? Is it 1 degree? Is it 2 degrees? Is it 10 degrees? Do we know?
4: Well, it depends on, on what scale we take the measurements, but if, if we if we compare the city temperature to a temperature just outside the city, and we take an average difference across uh, many months or many seasons or years, it, it could be anywhere from 1 or 2 or 3 degrees. However, if we do a comparison on, on a, a single night, when it's clear and calm, we can find differences of of 8 or 10 or 12 degrees uh, between the city and the countryside. So it's quite significant.
0: Wow. Now, we're seeing what's happening in Europe reports of hundreds and hundreds of deaths, and we know they don't have air conditioning in very dense cities and things like that going back hundreds of years. Um, is Is there a way of trying to Building cities is one thing, but can you retrofit? Can you, can you go back and sort of make changes, or are we too far down the road in some cases?
4: Well, you can. Of course, that's that's uh, less desirable than making changes before sure. a commu- community or neighbourhood is built. We always say consider climate at the earliest opportunity when you're constructing a, a community. Uh, however, there are changes that can be made. Many of them are, are largely cosmetic Meaning we can change the, the the some of the surface materials we can change the the reflective reflectivity of the materials by painting buildings white or light colors or using uh, green roofs and green facades we can We can insert small parks and urban gardens and things across the landscape just to break up the the homogeneity of the concrete and and the impermeable surfaces um, These will have a cumulative effect if they 're integrated across the city at, at large scales. Uh, because each one creates its own little microclimate, and, and the city is um, an accumulation of mm-hmm. microclimates that creates the urban heli. Yeah. So yes, we can do things, uh, but it takes a, an integrated effort across the whole city.
0: And like you say, it's, it's preferable to, to do it ahead of time. What should we be thinking about as we're building you know, cities or adding to the cities that exist? What kind of you know, uh, practices should we be employing to make this less of an issue?
4: Well, I I often say that the first thing we need to do is to think about the the geographic setting of the city. Many cities are located on coastlines next to large water bodies such as lakes and oceans. Other cities are in river valleys like Edmonton or on slopes or on on mountain uh, ridges and so on. All of these settings provide a natural ventilation for the city. They're sources of clean and fresh air that are often coming down slopes or coming off off the water. So it's important to design the city in a way that allows that fresh air to come come from outside the city and and into the city itself. So we can do that through orientation of streets, orientation of buildings and planting structures and so on to open up wind corridors and and, uh, airflow pathways into the city. Uh, We can also think more carefully about the placement of, of tall buildings um, side by side and whether or not they're allowing for um, access to the sky, access to airflow, right. access to clean air and cool air and so on. So. Those are things, as you say, that need to be done before the city is constructed.
0: Uh, A good question from one of our guests saying, you know, we keep hearing about we need to uh, get denser. We need our cities to uh, become, we need to combat urban sprawl. We need to get a density thing going and, you know, infill and all the rest of that stuff. That seems counterintuitive to what you're talking about. Is there a way to do that to make our cities more dense, less sprawly, uh, but at the same time be aware of what that's going to do in terms of the heat island effect?
4: Yeah, th- this is an excellent point, and it's it's all about balance in that sense. In that sense, so if we create very compact cities, that inevitably means the removal uh, of trees and, yeah, and yeah. green spaces, right? However, sprawling cities contribute to to more greenhouse gas emissions from transportation and building energy use, and so on. So th- the answer is finding a balance between a compact and a sprawling city. Uh, that can easily be done, and it can also be done through mixed land uses. And so it's, you know, I I envision a a city of of a mix of mid-rise and low-rise and high-rise buildings, but with an abundance of, of green space between them. But also allowing for some some compact urban forms and, and I think somewhere in the middle ground it lies the, the, the best solution. Is
0: this is this a consideration when people are doing city planning and are doing zoning and those sorts of things? Is you know how it's going to affect the heat island and you know, I mean just the whole city climate. Is that a consideration that's being taken by municipalities in Canada?
4: Well, Historically, no, yeah. and that's unfortunate, but there's an obvious reason for that. We live in a, in a generally cold climate in Canada. Our winters are long and miserable, and so we don't often think about the heat island. Uh, that's changing, however, with, with global warming, and I, there are some excellent initiatives that are being taken now by municipalities across Canada to combat heat island effects, and that's largely through the introduction of expanded tree canopies and more green spaces and and so on. So, yes, uh, things are shifting and I think the city governments are are taking some good actions in many places,
0: yeah, uh, and uh, and hopefully it continues. really interesting conversation, Dr. Stewart. Thank you so much for joining us.
4: yeah, it's been a very it's been a pleasure. thanks. thank you
0: that is Dr. Ian Stewart, who is a research fellow at the University of Toronto's Global Cities Institute and an international expert on what's called the Heat Island effect. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcast. If you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.